Uh, reminder, next week uh, will be a membership meeting, so please try to be here at 9 o'clock next week. I have a lot of exciting stuff uh, in terms of vision related to 2020. Uh, it's an exciting season in our church's life. Our average attendance is has grown uh, substantially. Uh, we're in a pretty good place. I'll get to share some of the next steps that, uh, of transformation that, that I believe God has for us as we are uh, continuing to grow and become more faithful uh, as a New Testament body of believers. We've come a long ways, but we have a ways to go. I'll really be preaching a synthesis of the two texts that we've heard read this morning, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 44. So Advent is here, the beginning of the Christian year, more than simply a lead-up to Christmas. It feels like the opening scene of a movie, characters going about their daily business while a sense of what is to come pervades the scene. We join Christians all over the world, week in and week out, to remember and rehearse the story of God. During this season, these four weeks, we look backward, we look forward, and we wait. We look backward before the triumphant resurrection, the crushing crucifixion, shocking miracles, groundbreaking sermons, and yes, even before the Word became flesh in a Bethlehem manger, there was stillness. There was waiting. There was the sort of waiting that somewhere along the way forgot it was even waiting, and into that world that perhaps forgot it was even waiting, Almighty God came to earth. We look forward. We learn a lot about God in the incarnation. If, I think the light, can we, are the lights all the way up, or is it just, maybe it's my lights. If lights aren't all the way up, make sure they are, please. Um, we learn a lot about God in the incarnation. We learn the earth-shattering, life-changing truth that God wants to be with His creation. It's a uniquely Christian doctrine that God wants to be with us. As the story of God unfolds in the New Testament, we understand clearly that Christ will return. He will return to earth to rule and reign forever, and of His kingdom there shall be no end. Christ will return bodily, and we will be resurrected in our bodies with Him. The final words of the Apostles' Creed go like this, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We look ahead to the day in which God will come again. We look ahead to the resurrection of the body. We look ahead to everlasting life. And like the world before the incarnation, we wait. During Advent, these four weeks, we learn how to live in the space in between. We learn how to wait well between Christ's first coming and His second coming. Looking back, I think, helps us learn how to look forward and live in the present. The life of faith is anchored in the fulfilled promises of God. And the life of faith is awaiting the soon fulfilling promises of God. We are anchored and we are awaiting. This morning's sermon is somewhat broad. It will likely be brief. It will paint the temporal borders of a biblical theology, situating our lives and their peculiar circumstances in the grand narrative of redemption. Meaning, I want to give some boundaries of time that help us think about our lives in the bigger picture. In the weeks to come, we'll narrow in focus. We'll narrow in application. We'll think about a life of faith 
in the space in between. We'll think about a life of joy in the space in between. We'll think about a life of hope in the space in between. I have only one point, but I'll make it again and again and again. God has come to earth, and God will come again. This is what that film is about, that Advent anticipates. Now, characters, we began to make sense of our role in it when we know it's not about us. It is about Almighty God breaking in to the world He created. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Uh, in the beginning portion of Isaiah's prophecy, uh, he's been pretty hard on the Israelites. This is a, uh, a dark, darker, not darkest, but darker moment uh, in their history. And he, he chastises them in many ways for their uh, false religion and, and the way that their hearts had become wayward in the first chapter. But in the second chapter, he transitions to hope, and he, he looks beyond where they are, and he looks at sort of what is beyond the horizon. And by looking at what is beyond the horizon, by looking at what is to come, Isaiah is hoping, I guess, that they'll, their affections for God will be certain, that they will be led to obedience. So let's just look at the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he, that word he is significant, that he that God himself, right, may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord." Verse 2 begins, it shall come to pass in the latter days. That phrase, in the latter days, is not unfamiliar to you if you've read the prophets before. When they say in the latter days, they're speaking somewhat broadly to that world beyond the horizon, that future that is out there, that is ultimate, that is coming for all of us. In these sort of final days, whatever they may be look like, Isaiah's conception of them is certainly different than our conception of them this morning. At least ours is, is clarified and understood through the lens of Christ Jesus. But Isaiah says in these latter days, really four movements are going to happen. There are four movements in the text. The first is the exaltation of the mountain of the Lord's temple. Now, ancient deities and pagan gods would have their temples and shrines built on, on mountaintops to represent their proximity to the deity. And uh, the temple would, you know, not be particularly impressive, uh, intentionally so, but all these false gods would put their, their temples or their, their followers would put their temples up on these, these high, high mountains to represent sort of their, their stature in the world, supposedly. Isaiah is some, saying that in these latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted above the hills. 
So the first movement we see in these latter days is the exaltation of the one true God, that the living God will reign above all the gods of the peoples that are worthless idols. The second movement we see is a flowing to the mountain of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Uh, I learned from experience that you don't flow of a mountain. Uh, my good friend Kevin and I got to visit uh, Bhutan recently, and we were walking up to uh, Tiger. He probably assumed this would work its way into a sermon sooner than later. It came really soon. Uh, we were walking up to Tiger's Nest, which is a famous monastery sort of carved in the top of a mountain. I had in my head it was going to be sort of easy. It was uh, maybe easy if you're in great shape. I am in a shape, not a great one. And, and so it was somewhat difficult for me to, to get up the hill. And so, you know, the experience that I had wasn't one of flowing. It was one of stopping every 20 steps and sitting with an Indian grandma looking at each other going, Oh, boy! <laughs> oh, boy! And then all, you know, everyone else walking. It was me and the little aunties taking our time going up the mountain, uh, but we still made it in a timeline that our guide allotted, and uh, uh, that was a good thing. But the point is that, you know, you don't flow up a mountain. You climb up a mountain. It's an arduous journey to get up a mountain. It's not an easy thing to get up a mountain, but what the prophet foretells here is a flowing up the mountain. He says that the, the Lord God will be exalted above all the other gods, and the nations will flow up this mountain to him. And I'm reminded of a couple New Testament scriptures. Jesus, right, claims in, in one place that, that his body is the temple, right? He says, you destroy this temple, it'll be rebuilt in three days. Three days, it takes years and years and years. So destroy this temple, it'll be rebuilt in three days. Jesus claims that he is the dwelling place of God as God incarnate. And then I think about John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, what? When I am lifted up, what? I will draw all men to myself. And I think about this passage. It's not just the nation's hearing of a God beyond the mountains who's great and glorious and them having with all their might to figure out a way to get to him. Something better happens. Jesus is lifted up. And Jesus grabs the nations by the color of the shirt and he pulls them up to himself. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, when he's lifted up on that cross at Golgotha, God would draw to him the nations. By grace, through faith, they would come to God, not of their own effort, but of God's own initiative. Isaiah foretells the exaltation of the Lord, the only true living God. Isaiah foretells the flowing of the nations up the mountain of the Lord. And the third movement we see is that this instruction will go out from Zion, right? All the nations shall flow to it, verse 3, and many people shall come and say, come let us go up the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
right? That the nations will say, let us go to the house of the Lord, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. That the nations will be drawn to God, the nations will learn how to live from God himself, and the nations will then obey God himself. Jeremiah would even prophesy later, or at, you know, a different moment, that, that something more than teaching the law is going to happen, that the law is going to be written on the hearts of God's people, that the people that God draws to himself from among the nations will come to God, they will learn the ways of God so that they can follow the will of God. I remind us once, as I remind us Almost every week, it seems, the way of God is meant to be followed. It does us no good just to learn facts about God, have opinions about God, if we're not obedient to God. Right? They want to learn the ways of God so that they can embody those ways of God in their everyday lives, so that they can truly turn from their way of living and turn to God's way of living. And God had in mind the whole time something greater than just receiving sort of a pamphlet of instruction at the top of a mountain and following some path by which I may find peace, by which I may find wholeness. Right? God's plan for the world was that he would draw all peoples to himself, that he would write his law on their hearts by his living spirit and that we may walk in his ways. The prophet Isaiah just looks out and sees a day where instruction will go out from Zion, that God's people will take God's will to the nations, that all may walk in God's way. And finally, in the latter days, right, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. The first movement was the exaltation in the mountain of the Lord's temple. The second movement was the flowing of the nations up the mountain. The third movement is that instruction will go out from Zion. And the fourth movement is that the nations will live in peace and harmony. Because of Christ, there will be peace. The peace which Christ made possible in his first coming... We read a lot about this in Colossians, right? The text says he disarmed and defeated the powers of, of Satan, the powers of darkness. He triumphed over them. He put them to open shame on the cross. The peace which he made possible through his life, death, and resurrection, he will consummate in his second coming, in those latter days that are still yet to come. So God's people in the days of Isaiah are, are, are knowing broadly that, that God will be exalted. The nations will come to God. They will learn to live God's way, that one day there will be peace. And we look back on this text through the eyes of the crucifixion and resurrection, and we say, what's God doing? What's yet to come? Why even think about these things? Why even think about the end times when they are so treacherous? We would fall off on one side or the other, and before you know it, we're in a cult. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's a difficult thing to think about. So why devote much time? And I think verse 5 is a significant reminder that we should think about God's coming, that we should remember the seasons of Advent, and we should be informed by our lives in the space between comings. Verse 5 reads, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah is inviting God's people, saying, based on all that is to come, 
I know this is the current situation we're in, Israel, and it's not particularly pretty, but in the coming days, in the latter days, this is what's going to happen. So come, God's people, come. Live God's way today. Walk in the light of the Lord. Light gives knowledge. Light gives warmth. Come and walk in His light that you may live the way God wills. So as we look back on this particular prophecy, as we look back on this particular world awaiting the incarnation, a world that I would argue at most junctures forgot it was waiting, this Jewish world that was not a monolith, right? Sometimes we can tell the story of the incarnation and we just picture all these thousands of Israelites waiting with bated breath for the Messiah, and that's not the case. Perhaps some were looking, some were waiting, some were just going about their lives. And we look back on this prophecy and we think about what God's people may have thought, how we this morning can learn from this text. I would argue in one sense the latter days have come, that Christ has been lifted up, that He is drawing all people to Himself, that there's a sense in which this prophecy has been set in motion by the coming of Christ, but there's another sense in which it's not yet fulfilled. Unfortunately, the nations still rage. Swords and guns are not yet beaten into plowshares as they will one day be. The disputes among nations have yet to be settled. False gods are lifted up all over the place. Sure, in South Asia, that takes the form of shrines and things, but in the U.S., our biggest buildings are given to our biggest gods we worship. Gods of sport, of money, of fame, and of power. These gods still have tremendous sway over the nations of the world. But between His two comings, we know that the promise that it has been fulfilled is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. What will that be like, right? When the swords and guns of the world are beaten into plowshares, when war is no more, when all the false gods are destroyed and where Jesus Christ reigns forever. What will that day be like? We join the disciples in asking that question of Jesus now. Flip with me to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, Matthew 24 has a lot of, of, of text sort of dealing with um, the the immediate next steps that his disciples are going to be facing, and then sort of the, the bigger picture, sort of end of the age next steps that, that are awaiting all the followers of, of Christ. As he said on the Mount of Olives, this is in verse 3, just listen to me read this. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age. Jesus has begun talking and their, their, their minds are, are spinning. Right? They have an Old Testament bed of knowledge that they rely on, but Jesus is in front of them and he's teaching all these things and they know who he is in some degree at this manner and they're, they're trying to compute, right? What's this going to look like? Jesus, can you tell us what it's going to be like when you're going to come again? Can you tell us what it's going to be like at the end? Of the age. And we jump ahead to verse 37, and essentially I think Jesus is telling them, here's what you really need to know to wait well. I know you're asking that question for your mind. Let me answer it for your heart. 
For as for the days of Noah, verse 37, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two men will be grinding it, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Uh, quickly, verse 36. Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. So here's my uh, pastoral application for you. Beware of the ones who think they know. <laughs> Concerning the day or the hour, the text says, no one knows. Not the angels, not the Son of Man. Nobody knows when that will happen. So if someone has a book where they've decided that they know, and I picture like the guy in the basement, right, with like the post-it notes, and the yarn connecting all the post-it notes, you know, and they're like, I've got it figured out, right? And then uh, they, they try to disseminate that to the world, maybe listen and, and humor them, but, but he does not, in fact, know. What we do know is that no one knows, right? What we see here in this, you know, the, going back to Noah and then the demonstrations or the, the illustrations, rather, of, of the people just going about their daily lives, of the, the thief and the night, right? We see this sort of pervasive sense of life happening as usual, of this, this sort of um, things are just going about their business. The master just goes to bed, right? The people just go to work. The people are just getting married. Like, all these things are just kind of happening, the world is just unfolding as it usually does. I think the main point of verses 39 through 41 is just this. Things are going to be really normal. And as we begin to land the plane, I would argue that you'll forget you were waiting. I am just afraid that many of us have forgotten we were waiting. And here's why I think we need our Bibles. We need the gathering of the church so desperately. Uh, N.T. Wright, a scholar, a popular scholar and, and bishop um, in St. Andrews, uh, wrote a really, really good sort of New Testament textbook, really. Um, and he was on a podcast I listened to talking about that. And he had a quote that really stuck out. Um, he said, we don't have good stories for navigating from where we are to where we should be. So one of the great problems of modernity, post-modernity, of where we are today, whatever you want to call it, one of the great problems of where we are is that we don't have good stories for navigating from where we are to where we should be. Right, the story of the Bible sets forth God's renewal plan for the whole world. And it gives us the earth-shattering, everything-altering truth that God has broken into his world, that his plan is unfolding in it. And when we reflect on these truths, a couple of things happen. Our hearts are stirred for Christ. And that moves us to obedience. 
we begin to realize that God has invited us into his story of redemption. He's not just our little buddy who makes us feel better about our lives. We have a sad tendency to detach what God is doing cosmically from what we are doing locally, when what we are doing locally finds its meaning in what God is doing cosmically. We have a sad tendency to think that the things of God are just happening out there and just be sort of functional Platonist at best, functional atheist really, and say, God is working out there, and I'm just over here going to work and hanging out and doing this and doing that. What we begin to do in those moments is detach our daily lives from the world that God has created and from the ways that God is acting in that world. And when we detach spiritual truth from lived experience, we fall asleep. We forget the time markers that the scriptures have given us. We forget to live by the cues that Jesus has come and Jesus is going to come and the nations will stand before him in judgment. Verse 42, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. How do we live between two comings? Before anything else, we must be awake. Let us not be asleep. Let us not be lulled into believing that whatever God is doing is somehow detached from my life. It's good to come to the Bible for advice, but it's better to come to the Bible to meet God. How can we stay awake? How can we live with a constant, steadfast wakefulness, knowing that Jesus Christ has come, that God has broken into our world to initiate his plan of renewal, and that God will come back into that world to consummate his plan of renewal, and that he will be lifted up above all, that we will stand before him in bodies, not some like in the sky, I'll fly away, one day I'll fly away, but God is here in the world he made because he loves it and because it's good. He will break into this world again. How do we live between those two breakings into the world? I think a fundamental way we do that is to come to the Scriptures and let our lives and our hearts and our minds be shaped by the story of God. Day in and day out, our hearts are being gripped by lesser stories. And we need our hearts to be recalibrated towards kingdom come. We need our lives to be framed by the story of God. And we begin to see ourselves, not merely as those who are identified by our profession, identified by our role in our family, identified by whatever, but we begin to see ourselves as characters in a novel, to bring it full circle from the introduction, all about God, about God's glory being made known, God's will being brought forth to the world, and God's renewal of all things. This doesn't minimize the significance of everyday life. It makes it even more significant 
that as I get up and as I go about my day, I am an agent of reconciliation. I am an ambassador of the Almighty, that I stand at the intersection of dust and deity, and God has called me, God has called you, God has called us, the people of God, to herald the gospel of Christ until he returns. Uh, Ryan, if you want to come on up as we uh, wind to a close. I have but one point, but you'll hear it over and over again as I've preached. God has come to earth. God will come again. And for many of you, that is simple. For many of you, that is why did we spend so much time grounding our situation, grounding our series, grounding this time in that truth. It's because I want us to fully grasp the reality that we stand here in the space between. The space between his first coming, the space between his second coming, and here we stand and here we wait. May over the next several weeks, we learn how to wait well. We learn how to wait when we don't see the end We learn how to wait when we're frustrated. We learn how to wait when things aren't going our way. We learn how to wait in faith. We learn how to wait with joy. And we learn how to wait with hope. That God is faithful to his promise. Wait, we will, until Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, your word is alive, and your word is good. And this morning we reflect on the reality that we dwell in this space between your first coming and your second coming. We're not living in the days of Isaiah. We have knowledge that the Israelites and Isaiah himself, even with all that you show to him, would love to have. We know how you've come into the world, and we know it's through Jesus that he was born in that manger in Bethlehem, that that he came to earth. The second person of the Godhead, Christ himself, has come. And Lord, we, we approach these texts that speak of the latter days, of your second coming, And there's so much we don't know. When, where, why, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what we do know, Lord. We know you're going to come back. We know you're going to win. We know you're going to be exalted above all. We know you're going to judge all. We know that the nations will live in peace and harmony and that this good world you created will be fully redeemed. And the dwelling place of God will be with man. And so, God, we wait for that day. We wait with expectation. We wait in faith. We wait with joy. And we wait with hope. And we wait actively. Knowing that our lives find their meaning in your story. God, help us play the background as we make straight the path of our soon coming King. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, I'll invite us all to the Lord's table. Um, if you're not in Christ, this table is, our scriptures teach, is, is not yet for you, right? Um, because we're proclaiming 
that the coming of Christ, that he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and that the death he died is in our place. And so as we take this bread, the scriptures teach that we're not just proclaiming that he came, but we're proclaiming that he's going to come again. He said, every time you take of this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we gather around this table to proclaim, each of us, the message that I just proclaimed. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And so it's a, it's a proclamation of faith when we come to the table this morning. It's an eschatological meal, right? It's a meal that transcends time and space. It's a meal that claim, proclaims our soon coming King. I'll come down to the table uh, and get situated, and I invite you to spend a couple of moments in reflection.